0: Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Manager. Today, I'm joined by Roberto Surro. He is Professor of Journalism and Public Policy and the Associate Director of the Price Center on Social Innovation at the University of Southern California. Prior to joining the USC faculty in 2007, Suro was director of the Pew Hispanic Center, a research organization in Washington, D.C., that he founded in 2001. He is also a longtime journalist who has reported for Time, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and other outlets. In this episode, Suro shares findings from a new paper in CMS's Journal on Migration and Human Security, which he co-authored with Hannah Findling. The paper is called Tax Equality for Immigrants, the Indispensable Ingredient for Remedying Child Poverty in the United States. Here's my conversation with Roberto Soro. Thanks so much for being here today, Roberto. Your article talks a lot about tax credits. What are tax credits, and why are they so effective at alleviating child poverty?
1: Well, tax credits you know are pretty much as they sound. When you file your income taxes, the tax code makes various provisions for you to get money back. And some of those tax credits only give you back the money that you've paid in, and others will actually pay you back more than what you paid in. There are two major tax credits um, that are aimed at people who are working poor. And one is the Earned Income Tax Credit and the other is the Child Tax Credit. Both of them are, the the scale of benefits um, is determined both by the family's income um, and the number of dependent children they have. And they're structured so that if you're at the very bottom of the income ladder, um, I mean, if you're working poor, you're literally employed, but at the poverty level below it or even a little bit above it, you get payments that increase with your income to a certain plateau – the child tax credit is also dependent on how many children you have. And it's similarly based on your income increases and then plateaus. And then if your income goes beyond a certain level, uh, then you no longer qualify. These tax credits do two things that have been identified as kind of the, the sort of magic formulas for addressing poverty particularly child poverty, and that is first to deliver relief immediately, I mean, to give people cash money that they can spend. And the other is to incentivize earnings and incentivize work. These two tax credits have been proven extremely effective in that regard. They've both been around for a long time. There's a ton of evidence that they actually do incentivize the adults to increase their earnings and to stay in the workforce and and can have very immediate effects in alleviating child poverty. So there's not only an evidence base behind them, but there's also very considerable bipartisan support. Republicans like the tax credits because they're linked to work. They're not handouts per se. They're, it is earned income. I mean, you, you have to do something to get these payments from the government. And liberals tend to like it because it is a very effective way of addressing poverty overall, and especially child poverty. So these are these are tried and true solutions. And then the question becomes, as it is now and what we address in this paper is who is eligible.
0: In your article, you describe a two tiered tax system for U.S. tax filers. Can you say what are the two tiers and how is the system different for each one?
1: Sure. So the one that most everybody is familiar with is you have a social security number. Uh, and if you're an American citizen, you basically get it at birth now. A social security number does a number of different things. It shows that you're authorized to work. Um, it allows you, of course, to participate in the social security system. And uh, with the social security number, you're eligible for all of these tax credits. But there are all kinds of people who earn income in the United States in different ways and who have tax obligations, but who don't qualify for a social security number. And so decades ago, the IRS, um, in Congress, created this parallel system, the individual taxpayer identification number, uh, affectionately known in the business as the I ten for everybody else. And the basic qualification for it is that you're not eligible for a social security number But you have an obligation to pay taxes. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the tax code is that it's blind to immigration status. So as far as the tax laws of the United States are, and it's very explicit, it says this, it doesn't matter what your status is at all. If you earn income in the United States, and if you're a resident here for any extended period of time, there's sort of a complicated test, but if you're even half-time living in the United States, and if you earn income here, you have to file a tax return. And if you're not eligible for a Social Security number, you're supposed to use an I ten. And when you do that... What you pay in is the same as whether you have a, a social security number or an I ten. It's exactly the same. You pay the same taxes. In terms of credits, however, there's a big difference. So you pay in the same, but you don't get back the same. Those are the two tiers. And so ITIN filers, for example, are excluded entirely from the Earned in Income Tax Credit, the EITC. And they're excluded from the Child Tax Credit now in, in almost all cases. So you have situations where, let's say you have two families, the income earners in one have Social Security numbers, in the other they have ITINs. They both make poverty wages fully employed adults in the many, many jobs in our economy that don't pay people enough to keep a family above poverty. The I-10 filers will actually be paying more in taxes than the social security filers. They have a higher burden. The tax system on the one side, the social security filers, is helping them get out of poverty. For the ITIN filers, the way it's currently structured, it's taking more money out of from you and making it harder to get out of poverty if you follow the rules. If you do what the IRS says, says you need to file your taxes, even if you're very poor and you're you don't qualify for a social security number, you are penalized. Those are the two tiers. And it's a very unequal system. You have a tax code that is ostensibly blind to immigration status in terms of the requirements, but is quite cognizant of immigration status when it comes to the benefits. There are all kinds of people who don't qualify for a social security number. The largest population are unauthorized migrants, but there are all kinds of people who are in the process of have papers in the works. They're kind of they're gray. They're you know in in immigration studies. This is a, a complicated and now very large population of people who are sort of between legality and not. Then all kinds of special situations that the spouses of certain visa holders, students in certain categories, or all kinds of people who file with itens and who are uh, as a result of this two tier system suffer consequences if they are working poor.
0: And I'm thinking about the fact that a lot of us recently got stimulus checks from the government as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Could you say within this two-tier system, what happened to the ITIN filers?
1: So at the onset um, of the pandemic and the first version of the stimulus, ITIN households were basically excluded say you had, uh, in a a very typical case, um, the parents are ITIN filers, the children are U.S. citizens, they've been born here. In that circumstance, initially, that family was excluded from the stimulus. It turns out to be a lot of people, and a lot of poor people, and a lot of U.S. citizen kids who were excluded because of the tax identifier that their parents were using to file their taxes. In the subsequent bills, and there were revisions of them, they they revised the qualifications for the first one, those households were were eventually included substantially in the later stimulus payments. And it marked a very important moment in which Congress and first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration acknowledged these I-10 householders as an important segment of the workforce and an important segment of the poverty population and specifically because the qualification rules now apply to US citizen children recognize that i tent households are made up of parents who are raising U.S. citizen children, and that the benefit, if you're trying to reach those U.S. citizen children, you have to go through their parents, who are I-10 filers. This was a moment of inclusion. Also related to the pandemic, in early 2020, several states, led by Colorado and California, took measures to include I-10 filers in their state EITCs. So there are about 30 states that have a state version of the earned income tax credit. And many of them also have child tax credits that run in parallel or are in, embedded in the, their state EITC programs. And so first with Colorado and California, and then subsequently with five other states in the past year, we've seen legislatures come to the conclusion that to effectively combat poverty and specifically the kind of poverty produced during the pandemic and the threats to children in poor households generated by this pandemic— That it was good social policy to include ITIN filers in those tax credits. One of the fallouts and a kind of unpredictable and unintended consequence of the pandemic, we've seen this momentum developing for ITIN inclusion.
0: And the states that did choose to include the ITIN filers, how did they explain that change?
1: In different states, these things came about in different ways. Um, and the arguments varied a little bit. But there are a few central arguments that have recurred. One is related to the narrative of essential workers. The realization that there is this large number of people who labor in jobs that require human contact. And that we can't live without Because they provide our food, our medicine, and all kinds of services with which civilization, our nation, can function. And that many of them are very poorly paid. That prompted some of this attention. In other places, there was an emphasis on the equality aspect of it. That you have um, similarly situated families that are treated differently differently. In some places, advocates argued successfully that ITIN inclusion helps remedy a structural racial bias in the tax code. ITIN filers are predominantly people of color, especially uh, because the unauthorized make up a very large segment of that population, uh, a lot of Latinos. So there are sort of a constellation of arguments. The tax credits are very popular. They have a constituency in legislatures because they have proven to be a very effective use of public funds.
0: Another point your article makes is that the number of people who are filing with ITINs is going down. Uh, it's decreased since 2015. Could you say why that's happened and what the impact is?
1: Right. So the, so the ITIN is kind of a curious creature that has gone through a couple of incarnations. The ITIN emerged in the 1990s, and then in the early aughts, under the George W. Bush administration, there was a lot of interest in bringing the unauthorized population into the banking system, particularly as the dollar amounts of remittances going to Mexico and other countries of origin was becoming quite substantial. Remittance payments to Mexico, it was increasing very rapidly. A lot of it was outside the banking system. You had a lot of people who were reliant on payday uh, payday cash Payments, so they would take their paychecks, go to somebody, um, and pay all their bills, and send their remittances, and then pay enormous fees, and then deal everything else in cash. So, you, as a matter of policy, the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve and the banks all wanted to bring these people into the system, and the way to do that was to declare, as the Treasury Department did, that an ITIN could be used for all kinds of financial transactions, including opening a checking account, taking out a mortgage, buying and selling stock. It it opened up the doors and actually encouraged financial institutions to use the ITIN for all kinds of things. Along the way, you also had the discussions of comprehensive immigration reform in the later part of the aughts, and then through the 2013-14 2013-14 effort to pass one in which there was the notion that if you could prove that you had been employed, if you could prove continuous presence, if you could prove that you had paid taxes, these were all things that would benefit you in the legalization process. So you had the government encouraging people to use their ITINs and file taxes as a precursor to legalization very explicitly. You know, our immigration politics started to change considerably at the end of the aughts, uh, beginning of the teens. The effort at comprehensive immigration reform failed in 2013, 2014. And there was greater agitation about allegations of fraud in the ITIN system and misuse of the ITIN system, concerns about unauthorized immigrants getting benefits through the ITIN system. And so you had both regulatory actions, and then some statutory actions, which were designed to kind of clean up the I-10 system. The allegations of fraud were never documented in a way where we can say that there was a very clear problem. There was a perceived problem. But it resulted in these measures that, for example, required renewal of the I-10 and then made it very difficult to get the I-10. There were rules that obliged the Treasury Department to review large shares of ITINs every year to see whether they were still in use, whether they were still legitimate or not. And the IRS wholesale started disqualifying ITINs if they hadn't been in use or there were any issues. They made it more difficult to get the document. They made requirements, and you have to do it on paper. You can only do it at a certain time of the year. You have to submit your original documents and send them to the IRS. So you have to send your birth certificate and your passport and other original documents and mail them off under the promise that you would get them back in a few months. I think there are a lot of native-born U.S. citizens who, if the IRS said, send me all your original documents and don't worry, we'll get them back to you, uh, would say, yeah, not a chance. So all these bureaucratic measures together resulted in a continuous decline in the number of people holding an ITIN and a decline in the number of people who were successfully renewing an ITIN and a decline in the number of people who were applying for an I-10. And along the way, some of the benefits that had existed, including some access to the child tax credit, were withdrawn specifically by the Trump administration. So what was once, you know, under U.S. policy seen as this important tool of immigrant integration, a way of people bringing people into the financial system, of allowing them to fulfill their obligations as taxpayers, then became something very different with a negative connotation and under suspicion and facing a lot of bureaucratic difficulties. It has withered. During this time, Internal watchdogs at the Treasury Department and the IRS have repeatedly sent reports to Congress describing all this as it was happening and urging Congress to instruct the IRS to not let this system fall into the disarray that it is in now. There are passionate statements from the National Taxpayer Advocate and the Treasury Department uh, Inspector General Saying what the IRS was doing, for example, cancelling almost half a million um, ITINs one year without notifying the people that they were losing their ITINs, and that when they filed their taxes, all of a sudden they had invalid numbers. Protesting this as unfair, not following congressional intent, and being fundamentally inefficient in the administration of this aspect of the tax system. There are two agendas that we address in this paper. One is inclusion, but the other one is access. And the second one, access, is as important as inclusion because you can't say, okay, you now are eligible for this benefit, but you're going to have to jump through a series of impossible hoops in order to get access to it.
0: What regulatory changes at the federal level could be done to improve that access?
1: Well, the application system could be made much simpler. It could be done electronically. It could be done all year around. And you could make provisions for people to deliver certified copies of their documents as opposed to the originals. I mean, currently, you can do that by going into certain IRS service centers. There are some designated around the country where you can go in with your documents and have them certified. But that is a cumbersome process. It's only available in some places. And those offices have all been closed since the beginning of the pandemic. There are a number of these steps, and they've all been outlined in specific recommendations by these these internal watchdogs. And we're not talking about advocates. We're talking about offices of the U.S. government that have said to the IRS, hey, look, this is what you need to be doing. There, these are fairly simple measures I mean the something larger that Congress would have to undertake, which is to make the i ten permanent the way the social security number is so you don't have to go through a renewal process um, every few years but there are you know access could be greatly facilitated through a number of simple measures so you you get inclusion, you get access, but then There needs to be a substantial program to educate and assist people in applying for an I-10, understanding how to file taxes, how who's eligible for a tax credit, how to claim the tax credit. All of us go through this. The tax system ain't simple. If you've never encountered it before, you need help. And more help than you can get from an online tax preparation program. And that would require a substantial campaign that would involve advocacy groups, NGOs, philanthropies, faith organizations, and the government itself at the local, state, and federal level saying this is a priority. We, we want people to come forward, identify themselves fulfill their tax obligations, and in exchange, you will be eligible for these very substantial credits.
0: And what happens if ITIN filers don't have access to these earned income tax credits? The system doesn't become easier to navigate and we don't see the type of outreach you're describing. What's the effect on child poverty in the United States?
1: President Biden, you know, early on, declared that his primary goal in terms of social policy was to cut childhood poverty in half. If you don't undertake these measures we've described, reducing child poverty to that degree will be difficult, if not impossible. There are about 10 million or so children living in poverty in in the United States today. Um, Of them, about 2 million live in I-10 households, about one out of five children living in poverty in the United States today has a parent who, if they were to file taxes, would have to use an I-10. And of those children, 1.6 million or so, 85%, are U.S. citizens. So we're talking about our kids, our future. These aren't immigrants. These are native-born U.S. citizens who are being denied a benefit that is meant to ensure their physical and mental health, their social well-being, their ability to go to school, their ability to become productive in their future as U.S. citizens. So you've got this sort of ambition, cutting child poverty in half. But beyond that, these are our kids. And they're being denied... Something that really is essential to like having food, having shelter, being able to go to school, having clothes. And we're saying to them that we're denying them the same credit that the kid next door is getting because the nine digit number their parents would use to file taxes is different. It's an ITIN and not a social security number. But there's more to it than that. So if you imagine that there's a substantial increase in the number of people who are ITIN eligible workers who are paying their taxes with an ITIN, they've come forward, they've identified themselves, they've given all their information to the government they basically said, yeah, we're here without authorization. That's why we're getting an I-10, but we're workers and we're parents and we're here to tell you we're ready to play by the rules. We are going to obey the tax code and do everything you ask of us. And in exchange, the government says, if you meet the qualifications for these very effective social policies, we will include you. We will give you the funds in order to raise your children to the standards that we think are the minimum, the bare minimum of American society in the 21st century. To my mind, that constitutes a very important transaction. I call it transactional recognition, where both parties are saying, okay, we're here, we're playing by the rules, we're, gonna, we're incorporating ourselves, and you now have the tax code in a way, embracing the logic of legalization, which is to say, you've been here, you've been here for a long time, you meet a series of qualifications. In this case, you are employed, you're earning, and you are parents. And under those circumstances, we are recognizing you, and we are legitimizing you as workers and as parents. We are saying we, under- we accept the fact that that you're here doing essential work. And we accept the fact and we honor the fact that you are raising our children. That, to me, is something that, given the current state of, of immigration politics and policy, would be a very important step forward. We may be at a moment where this can happen. The key to President Biden's child poverty reduction program was an expansion of the EITC and the CTC expanding the benefits, making them more generous, that was part of the last stimulus plan, the American Rescue Plan that was passed spring of 2021, as a temporary measure. He proposed in April that they become permanent, and that is embedded in the reconciliation bill, which now, August 2021, is presenting itself in both houses of Congress. As part of this big budget measure, it's the big $3.5 billion investment in human infrastructure. So this presents an opportunity. There's in the Senate, there's legislative language to do exactly that with the child tax credit, to extend it to all US citizen children, regardless of their parents' filing status. So we're at a moment where this very unusual effort to enact really enormous social policy in Washington through a budget reconciliation measure has created the opportunity. And meanwhile, there are five or six state legislatures that are still have bills in front of them knocking around that would expand state tax credits to i filers. So there's, we're at a moment where this could happen um, and, and it could be real.
0: If you want to learn more about the Center for Migration Studies, Journal on Migration and Human Security, please visit CMSNY.org. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by The Music Case. For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode, or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at CMSNY.org.